0: All of
1: you on the good on One. And on at
2: one small step for man, one giant leap for man.
3: All right, and welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 621 for the week of Monday, December 8th, 2014. I'm back after a few weeks. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and we are joined once again by Gene McCulka, Kat Robeson, and Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craft We've got our gang together, and we've got one very important topic to talk about tonight. We'll also mention something that came up briefly in the news at the very end because we think it's important enough to mention, but this will primarily be an episode dedicated to Exploration Flight Test 1, or EFT-1. And that was the test flight of the Orion Multipurpose Crew Vehicle, which was launched atop a Delta IV heavy rocket and launched from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida, splashing down four and a half hours later in the Pacific Ocean off the Baja Peninsula. So the original launch attempt for that was scheduled to be December 4th, 2014. However, after multiple launch attempts, which we'll get into in a little bit, they ended up doing a 24-hour scrub and trying again at 7.05 a.m. Eastern Time on December 5th, which it went off, and the mission went better than expected even. So we got a lot to talk about. Let's get right into the big picture of EFT1. Shall we start with the first launch attempts or the mission, or where are we going to go?
1: Why don't we go with the launch attempt there Sawyer and and uh we'll we'll take it from we'll take it from the top and we'll we'll move forward.
3: All right, great. So then the <laughs> we'll go with the first launch attempt it was scheduled for December 4th, 2014, 7:05 a.m. Eastern Time. That was the opening of a 2 hour 39 minute launch window didn't necessarily go in that window. No,
1: no, 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 it did not. <laughs> it was a beautiful morning, though. I mean, I mean...
3: It was gorgeous. We were... By the way, we should add that uh, Gene, Cat, and myself were all down in Florida for the launch cat night, the press site Gene with the NASA Social.
1: Yeah, so it was, a, from our vantage point uh, along the causeway, it was gorgeous. The sun was just coming up. Things were... The weather was was favorable, at least from a sunshine standpoint. We did have some winds we were looking at, but then we had the infamous wayward mariner to consider. And uh, I understand a, a, both a cruise ship and a sailboat got into the area, although later on, Kat Sawyer, you guys found out that the cruise ship was not a factor, but the sailboat still was. And that particular, to use the words of Brent Colbertson. That particular uh, sailboat operator, not a captain, because again, captain would imply some sense of responsibility, faced the wrath of the Coast Guard, if I'm not mistaken.
3: One thing I do want to add, by the way, is uh, a great Twitter account that was formed after the first scrub of the Antares launch. (laughs) We mentioned this on a show that never aired because we know what happened to Orb 3, and we had to re-record that episode. However, uh, there was a Twitter account that was created for the first attempt, and it was the Unauthorized Boat, or at Wayward Boat, on Twitter. <laughs>
1: yeah, that, that is I handsome.
3: wish I was joking with this one, but all of a sudden, as the, uh, the scrub happened, that boat came back on Twitter and was just right back into it. Said, hey yeah. there, uh, just sailing south for a warm winter vacation. <laughs> what are all these people looking at?
1: Yeah, exactly. I saw that too, and I was just like, oh boy, here we go. But, well, uh, what's
0: what's really amusing is when they when they announced that there was a hole due to a range issue in the boat in the box. I just looked at my neighbor and I said, "Coast Guard, you had one job." My neighbor was a Coast Guard guy, <laughs> 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 but he found it very amusing and and laughed and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I know."
1: Well, as as things turned out, that was the least of our worries that oh, yeah. day.
0: That first attempt was then
3: moved because of that. Instead of launching at the opening of the window at 7.05, the next attempt was for 7.17 a.m. Eastern Time. And uh, Gene, if you want to now go into why that one didn't go off.
1: Yeah, there there were some issues with some upper-level winds by that point, if I'm not mistaken, Sawyer. And uh, so we had to wait for that to clear up.
3: Yeah, a lot of it, there was a weird rule because of the size and the craziness of the Delta IV Heavy itself is that the wind speed, the max wind speed that they could have differed depending on the direction that the wind was going. Because if it was going to blow it, you know, easterly over the water, it wasn't as big of a deal if it was, you know, higher winds. Whereas if it was going to blow it into the launch launch tower, obviously that you want lesser winds. But the main thing was winds above 20... or 21 knots, something around there, and they started the count, and this was a relatively new thing. Up until about a few years ago, I found out, it was a manual call on the scrub in terms of if the wind went over a certain speed. Only recently did they start making it automated, that in the sequence, there was a computer program that said, if the wind is greater than 21 knots coming from this direction, call a scrub, or call a hold, since they didn't scrub it at that point, and that's what happened... Multiple times.
0: Yeah, They actually eventually went to manually monitoring it because of the automatic holds happening because of the system calling it based on its on readings.
3: Yeah, and these were calling it about... They started the terminal count at T-minus four minutes. One of them was called at about T-minus three minutes and 20 seconds, another was three minutes and nine seconds, so... Basically, at that point, they just wanted to get it off the ground, but they tried at 7.17 a.m. and 7.55 a.m., and then they tried again for 8.26 a.m.
0: What was really interesting about that 8.26 a.m. attempt is when that scrubbed one of the uh, fellows that was up on the roof with said, you know, I get worried the more they scrub, the more that rocket sits out there, the more issues that can crop up.
1: Right. And that's essentially what happened, too, because then we had the, uh, the fill and drain valve issue uh, come into play at that point. I believe the fill and drain valves for both the liquid hydrogen and the liquid o- oxygen uh, were, were starting to give us fits as far as not closing properly. We eventually, after cycling or essentially, you know, turning the uh, the valves on and off, we got into a situation where we got the liquid oxygen valves taken care of the liquid hydrogen valves still were kind of bulky and by that time too i think the batteries in one of the sources on board the the vehicle were were kind of running down and they thought that well now maybe it might be a a better chance of valor to save that battery power for when we can really really fly and decided to basically call it a day after uh, a few times of trying. So that was kind of the vibe that we were getting on the causeway, the more you kind of scrub, the more and more the rocket stays there, the more and more the you know problems could happen. And so the more times that the launch, that the T-Zero time got uh, pushed back, more and more I was getting skeptical of us going that day. So, uh, you know, it was probably just as well that uh, we raised the white flag when we did because I think we were just flat out snake bit. And uh, the vehicle just basically said, I'm not going to go to space today. And that, that was it. So we packed it in. So,
0: the issue that it ended up being with those valves is one that ULA had seen before in yeah. the same type of situation. So at that point, they were very confident that they would be able to deal with the issue during a 24 hour cycle scrub.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's what was said during the post scrub press briefing. Then this is a known issue, and and you know I, I recall from my own past history watching various you know Delta Four launches that, or Delta Four heavy launches for uh, uh, the U.S. military, which I believe by the way the interesting part about this booster, and and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that uh, this was really the first time that a civilian payload had been carried by a Delta Four heavy. Correct.
3: That is correct. All the right. other ones were military, you know, DOD, can't say what they are, and satellites. Right,
1: exactly. Which, by the way, there's going to be one launched, uh, we think, tomorrow. Uh, it's Wednesday on, uh, what, uh, today's Wednesday, December 10th, as, as we record this. So tomorrow, uh, supposedly, there's going to be a launch attempt for another one. Uh, however, I think uh, uh, the weather may have something to say about that. But moving right along, yeah, this has happened a few times before. It's a known problem with the Delta IV, so they kind of know the solution to it. And uh, ULA worked its magic overnight and got the vehicle up and going. But
3: uh, uh, can, can I just add, coming into the next launch attempt, after that first one, uh, I was with Mark Ratterman, who's also, if you listen to the show regularly, on the panel. And uh, I know we were both talking early in that morning when we woke up for the next day, probably about 1, 2 a.m., going... Are they really going to fuel this? Are we really going to go? Because the weather chance for the next day was only about a 40% chance to go. And we figured they were going to wait until Saturday when the weather was better and allow us to sleep a little more, at least at the press. But we were kind of hoping that it was going to be a 48-hour turnaround instead of 24. But ULA was confident. They went ahead and they assumed that the weather was going to be clear enough and that the valve issue was going to be fixed. Since, like they said, they'd seen it before. They didn't need to replace it or anything.
0: We were very skeptical up on the roof of the VAB. In fact, it took until T-40, T-30 for all the photographers to walk over to their cameras because we were still skeptical, even at that point, that it was going to fly on Friday.
1: Well, to be honest with you guys, I had a very good feeling about it. I know the weather was always iffy, but it's Florida. To invoke some memories of STS-135, weather was iffy then, too. I've seen launch days where... Weather is ended up biting us, and as we went into the count, it was ninety percent go. So I'm like, we'll see what what happens as we get to t zero. I was a little bit more confident than than anybody than than you guys were about, uh, about sounds like it, <laughs> yeah, I really was,
3: yeah, because uh, there's an old saying, you know, I've seen it go when it's not ni- I've seen it uh, scrub when it's ninety percent go and launch when it's ten percent go. and it's true. 135 at one point, I think, was down to 10, 20, or only 30% go. And it went, and I was a little worried because the issue was is that if it did not go, they were going to have to do—they couldn't launch again the next day. They didn't have enough fuel in the tanks. And after Saturday, they gave up the range. So that means it would have had to have been another two- or three-week delay before they could launch it again unless they got the option to launch again on Sunday, which was a possibility. But basically, if it well, didn't did. go Friday, they were done for a few weeks.
0: Well, they did say Thursday afternoon that they would be able to do a Sunday a Sunday scrub, and all the, the emails, I don't know if you saw the emails that we got, indicated that they had confidence that if it did scrub on Friday, they would be able to try again on Sunday. But, you know, if they didn't make it Sunday, then yeah, with the launch schedule, it would be looking at a couple weeks minimum delay.
3: So yeah. I think it was a little risky for them, honestly, trying to go for this on the Friday launch attempt, especially with the weather and with the valve and... Uh, I mean, it probably helped because it was a Friday and people could come out and see it more than on a Thursday morning, but nonetheless, I was very skeptical, especially since I I was on a three-year launch drought and I haven't seen a launch that long because they've all (laughs) scrubbed or delayed, but uh, that's just personal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we were, but uh, again, we were a little bit more confident at our end about this. Some of the folks that I was with, they had the same concerns that that you just presented and my thought was, well, okay, fine, we'll just see what happens as we get closer to T0 on Friday. If there's a chance, there's always a, you know, you got to fuel the bird and, and give it a whirl. And give it a whirl, we did, and uh, the payoff was Friday morning at uh, 7.05. Uh, we can go into that if you folks want, because I thought the vibe on Friday morning, even though that I think half of us were kind of going through our own version of Groundhog Day, if you will, was a lot better on Friday than it was on uh, on Thursday. Everything just seemed to be clear sailing. Again, a glorious, beautiful, colored sunrise. And uh, the winds were actually not that bad.
0: Well, the winds were thought. actually higher, but they came from a different direction. That's... So they didn't violate the parameters set for launch winds. So the winds were actually a little bit more intense on Friday, but coming from a direction that was much more favorable for such a wide rocket.
1: I just want to get get everybody's impression, too, of of the launch itself. First off, the the Delta IV Heavy is is a beast when it goes up. I mean, it's about, and somebody can check me on this one, it's about 270, almost 278 feet tall, you know, as as it rises off the pad, and it had this real slow run, you know, off the pad, and... And and into the sky, and just the sound was 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 interesting. But you didn't get that hit in the chest that Sawyer, that you and I have have sort of come accustomed to with shuttle. Exactly,
3: I felt like I was missing something. I'm like I'm it, I heard it for the longest time. It just the sound kept going and going. It was really powerful. It was loud. But you're right. I didn't feel it in my chest, and that could be because there were no solids. It's all you know liquid fuel. It's 236 feet tall, or about 70 meters tall, full of all liquid hydrogen and oxygen, rather than the power and immediate thrust of those boosters. So that might be part of it, but it, nothing else. It sounded amazing. And I got to insert here, we got to play the clip that Mark Ratterman recorded. He was right along the water, set up his recorder, and this was what launch sounded like from the causeway. You've got to hear this. And it goes on for a good minute and a half of just Launch audio. So we'll start it from uh, T-10, and we'll let you listen.
1: Yeah, I have to thank Mark for collecting that for us. I had a recorder, too, but his is far more superior to mine. And that one really, really faithfully captured what the sound of the Delta IV Heavy was. And, and Mark, thank you so much for grabbing that, because that really, really put the sound into perspective. It really did. I mean, that, that, that's essentially what we were experiencing. And it was just one of these, you know, emotional things where you know that 10 years worth of somebody's work is sitting on, in that fairing and you're just waiting to see how this is all going to come to fruition.
0: Speaking of emotional, I got the chance to go out to uh, Pad 34 to set up some remote cameras with the guys from Space Flight Insider, and getting the chance to, to be on that pad, um, I had never been out before, so getting the chance to kind of be on that pad, pay homage to the past, and then to look over and see Orion mated to the Delta Four, waiting for its launch was really... Just a, a moment for any enthusiast of space to kind of reflect on where we're going with this program. But beyond being able to see the actual launch from the VAB roof, which was just an incredible thing, uh, just that panorama before you and to see the rocket just you know slowly glide off of the pad and up and in, up into the air was amazing. But I think it all really came home and, and really hit me a few hours later when I'm sitting at the table with Sawyer and a few of the guys from Spaceflight Insider, and I see a picture taken from Pad 34 from one of the remote cameras, and it's just the remaining launch structure, and you see Orion just lifting off to the side, and it just hit me. Here's our past, and it's just standing sentinel over the hopes of, of where we hope to go in the future, and, and the deep space missions that we hope Orion eventually goes on. and like you said i mean it's emotional to see that and to to really look at orion in perspective of where it belongs in our space program
1: yeah agreed kat i mean there was a shot that uh, mike killian had taken and uh we were looking at that and to be honest i looked at that and i got choked up um, and i should
0: mention that sean costello is the uh photographer of that remote camera and you know he again he's with spaceflight insider and it it's just the shot that I looked over, and it, it just took my breath away.
1: Yeah, Mike Killian also had a similar shot. He's not associated with Baseball Insider, but that was the one that I saw, and it had the entire pad looking, you know, the entire uh, structure, what's left of Pad Thirty Four, with the Orion uh, Delta Four Heavy sort of, you know, in the off to the off to the right, flying and 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 reaching for the sky again, and it got our group. When we saw it, it got our group really, really choked up because, again, the significance of that can't be underplayed. Here's where we essentially started our reach for the moon on pad 34, tragically so. And uh, I kind of think, and I'm I'm getting chills now thinking about it, I kind of think, I wish uh, Gus and Ed and Roger were here to see that. I think they would have approved.
3: Yeah, our whole table was just, as soon as they pulled up that image, we were all just gasping in amazement and it's going to be in the show notes in case you didn't get to see it courtesy of spaceflight insider i'll add right now again if you missed it and you don't have a really good pair of headphones on or you're in your car or something (coughs) turn up the volume go back and listen to that launch again just rewind it a few minutes and listen to that launch again either on a great pair of headphones or crank up the volume if you're listening on astronomy fm Go to our website, talkingspaceonline.com. Listen to that again, because I I get chills every time I listen to that. And then it went off into the clouds and began its four-and-a-half-hour mission. Well, I think we have to talk a little bit about the amazing coverage of the mission. I think we had a consensus that this was NASA TV's golden day, their best coverage ever. And I think part of that was due to the fact that we were getting live images from inside Orion for almost the entirety of the mission.
1: Yes, so I have to agree with that. The NASA social folks, we were watching in an auditorium over at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center IMAX Theater where they were showing the whole mission there, and it was just, wow. I heard some mixed reviews about the coverage, to be honest with you. One group saying that, what you know, I think all of us here would concur with your assessment, Sawyer, and with the assessment of others, that I really think they really did a good job. There's another school of thought out there that I heard that this was a little too showbiz, and they kind of went over at the deep end, and they kind of preferred the laconic style of the old Apollo days. My thought on this is, although I I grew up with Jack King and and those guys. You have to shift things for a different audience and for a different time. And Rob Navius was dead on with this. So was, so was Brandy Dean. So was the entire, and so was John Yambrick. So was everybody involved with coverage on the NASA television side. This was probably their, you know, finest hour moment, if you will, for this, this mission. I mean, this, this was beautiful. And I thought they did an exceptional job.
3: I agree, and if nothing else, I think a large part of it was, like we were mentioning, due to the fact that, you know, we're used to the old Apollo days where there wasn't that much live video when you see a capsule or other test flights where, you know, it launches and then you don't see much about it. Even with shuttle, you know, when it was orbiting around, you'd see a little bit from inside the uh, cargo bay, and then they'd cut back to the mission control screen. This one, there was a lot more video, it seemed like, from inside the spacecraft, first when orbiting... Uh, in its lower orbit, and then when it got to the highest point in its orbit, and you saw pretty much the whole Earth and the fill almost all the screen, if nothing else, in the bottom right corner. That was uh, that was an amazing moment when it got to its highest peak, and even the entire newsroom all just gasped when they saw that.
0: Yeah, you remember the reporter from, um, I want to say Global News, it was a uh, Canadian reporter? Yes. And she kept asking us, are those live pictures? And we're like, yeah, those are live pictures, those are from inside Orion. Isn't it amazing? And and they really were. like, It was hard to to even accept the fact that you're sitting in the press room and you're looking at these live images of our planet and they're just spectacular. They're breathtaking.
1: That was one of the gifts of Apollo, that we were able to go ahead and look back at our planet in, in, in its entirety and see that we're all in, in this boat together, so we better get our own act together. And I'm hoping that that gift especially right now given what's going on outside of the space world i'm hoping that that gift comes back to us and maybe think has people think a little bit more about their role here but uh i have to agree with with everybody here that uh, you know the photographs from there were were just absolutely amazing and and the i i believe too we lost one of the cameras was not really happy and that may that was really the only problem Only glitch for the mission.
3: Can I just say I found it pretty amazing that there was one point where they were... uh, I don't know if amazing is the word, but there was one point where they were saying the GPS on board is performing better than expected. I mean, A, that shows how great everything is going, but B, does that show they don't have that much trust in their own GPS system using their own NASA GPS satellites?
1: Well, I don't think that was the case. I think they basically... Gave this thing all sorts of telemetry. There was all sorts of stuff kind of fed into there, and again, you have to remember too. So this was a test flight. You want to make sure that you get proper positions and so on. I don't think it was a matter of trust. I think it was just a matter of, you know, just discovering what works. And um, if I just found it funny. <laughs> yeah. If somebody stuck a GPS in there, you want to make sure too that if you're able to recover the spacecraft too in the event that yeah maybe it does land where you don't want it to land so and and using gps you can you can go ahead and find it so that's a good observation regardless i think i I have to ask some folks about that we might as well go into too what this thing was wired for i believe they had all kind of flight data recorders on board to find out what was going on inside the capsule from a Passenger standpoint. Although there wasn't really a crash test dummy, in if you will, into this thing, that'll probably happen on EM1. But you want to make sure too that you still get enough data, passenger data, that you can kind of feed that along. This was a test of the avionics. This was a test of the uh, of the thrusters. This was a test of the radiation shielding because I believe this was the first time too that that this, that we entered into the Van Allen radiation belt. Last time we did that was uh, in 1972 with Apollo 17, so that was critical. And of course, too, we had a test of, of the heat shield. Now, the heat shield's kind of an interesting thing, too, whereby it's almost the same type of material that was used in the Apollo era. In fact, I understand that they had to go ahead and track down the company that made this and try to simulate the formula and, and get it on onto the spacecraft, so that was, a, mm-hmm. that was a that was a that was a Herculean task in and of itself. Yep, it's a
3: material called Avcoat, by the way. It's, right, uh, that's what they used back in the seventies. But uh, you and I, Gene, were actually talking with one of the uh, engineers who worked on the heat shield, and he was saying that they lost the original formula and they were tracking it down, but it didn't have proportions, and they were spending a lot of time just trying to get it as close to what it was as possible while eliminating all the carcinogens that they used back in the seventies
1: yeah exactly and And the idea too is just to make sure that this was the first test to make sure they got it right and uh so far you know the spacecraft came back so uh I know the the gentleman sorry, that you and I were talking to, he was saying he couldn't wait to get the spacecraft back to start taking core samples and see where you know where the the heat kind of you know penetrated certain areas and so on if at all. And he was very, very eager to get that back. And I believe he's, all in all, I think the study's going to take about a year to do as far as if I remember exactly. Uh, Some of it will be released. Some of it won't be because, again, since this fell under, I believe, Lockheed Martin's uh, umbrella, Lockheed Martin was managing the mission for NASA. So some of this will be proprietary information. Some of this will not be and i'm sure that they will release the non-proprietary information uh as much as they can but yeah this is just one of the things that the folks uh between now and em1 are going to be taking a look at they're going to be taking a look at all the data returned from from orion so yeah this is just part of the data we're going to be we're going to be looking at sawyer you had a couple of things you wanted to mention
3: it was just amazing all this is we were talking about and that engineer went and already he's in san diego as we speak getting core samples and initial readings and spacecraft will be back by christmas talk about a christmas present there but i do want to bring up the heat shield itself and the re-entry because there was a few things with that first off they were expecting like a two minute loss of signal and yet a few seconds later it came back and there was the plasma engulfing the window live video of that and then they had a drone filming it as it, spla- as it was on its way down. There's an onboard camera that showed the parachutes deploying that looked identical to the test that they did. Because I edited video for Spaceflight Insider with that exact test footage. And it looked almost identical. And then just to see the water cover the onboard camera as it splashed down and then the drone footage and the helicopter footage... If going back to the coverage i think that was the golden moment there was just the amazingness that we got of actually seeing it splash down up from re-entry through the atmosphere to splash down
1: one of the interesting things too sir is again cuz i recall apollo as as a small kid and watching some of these re-entries with the apollo capsule there was a long there was a few minute calm blackout between the uh, the spacecraft and and the ground as they were coming through uh, for re entry, because you're traveling at a speed of about what is it, 24,000 miles an hour at that point, and you know, the plasma's around you, and sometimes radio can't penetrate through all that. But we got it back within seconds, and that was a shocker to me. I was like, holy wow, that was a real huge takeaway there. The other thing, too, was the reaction of everybody in the auditorium, it just wasn't the NASA social folks in there, it was the general public. And as the drogues opened up there was a huge applause. As the the mains opened up and reefed out, there was just pandemonium. And it splashed and I think there was a standing O. I mean that that's how people were so much into this. And and that kind of now, I kind of expected that, and I'm, I'm going to throw that over to you guys because you guys were at the press site. I kind of, And I kind of expected that kind of reaction from everybody in the press site. And so you, you, to, to set this up, you've got some, some really cool footage from inside there of people sort of patting everybody on the back and yelling and screaming. But the deal with me here was that I was in with the general public. And there was just pandemonium in there, too. I mean, it was, everybody was just mesmerized and and just really, really into it.
3: Yeah, I gotta say, the press does not normally jump up and cheer and applaud inside the newsroom, especially for a mission like this where a lot of people were very skeptical. Uh, By the end of this mission, not as many people were skeptical. I had my phone out, and I was just taking video of the reaction as it splashed down, and... uh, if we can, maybe we'll link that in the show notes. But if nothing else, if we could just play some of the audio from that, just the reaction from the press. It's you don't hear these people who are normally the ones that are supposed to be just reporting it actually getting involved and cheering and the best was just the silence as soon as it started re entering and then the cheers and then the dead silence. And the cheers yeah. just kept going up and down as the major moments happened.
1: Yeah, it was it was the same thing with us. You know, you had had the drugs and then all right, applause and then dead silence. It, it was it was almost a mirror image of what was going on over the press site and i have to agree with you sorry the last time i saw everybody just go into pandemonium um was at the mars science lab launch when the vehicle detached and was on its way there was a huge amount of applause and even when uh when we came in for the post uh launch press briefing uh you know everybody you know gave the the scientists and and anybody involved with the launch uh, a huge round of applause as they entered and and we went to, uh, and, and we finally went to air. But uh, again, that, that was just the pandemonium was, was almost the same in the IMAX theater. And that really, really made me feel good. And that basically said that the public is into this. They're energized. They want this program to succeed. So let's just hope that momentum continues into, uh, it's going to be a long haul, folks. Uh, hope that momentum continues into, uh, into the 2017-2018 time frame. So,
3: yeah, it is going to be a long haul. But then again, a lot of these people have been in it for a long haul already since, you know, the days when this was the Constellation program, not just, you know, Orion and SLS. And I actually got to talk with one of those guys, and that's Orion Project Manager Mark Geyer. He's been involved with this since the Constellation days. Ten years. You know, Orion hasn't changed too much. The launch vehicle has, its mission has, but the vehicle itself... Is relatively similar to what it was in 2004, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'll let him talk about that and a little bit more about the importance of this mission and the spacecraft and what they're looking forward to testing. All right, so how long have you been
4: invested in the Orion program? I've been on the Orion, in the Orion program for seven years as the program manager.
3: And how has it evolved when you joined to now approaching the first test program?
4: Well, it's changed quite a bit. Um, when I first came in, of course, we were uh, part of the Constellation program. Um, and then, about three years into my tenure, we had the political changes and the decision to cancel Constellation. So then we went through a reformulation at that time and uh, convinced everybody that Orion met the requirements of this new MPCV. Uh, so that was a pretty big deal for us. And then also in that time, with the with the budget reductions as part of the the new plan, we reformulated the program, came up with a a new launch program, and actually that's where EFT-1 was born, where we thought, hey, we can do an important flight test in just a few years. So that's when it was conceived in 2011, and then here we are in 2014, so ready to fly it. Are there any drastic changes from the Orion of Constellations to the Orion of now? No, it's very similar, very similar, because... When you think about it, so the Orion on a constellation was a system that got people to the region of the moon, and then there was a lander involved in that where people then landed on the surface of the moon. So now MPCV is taking people to uh, high lunar orbit, but those missions are very similar as far as the environments they're going to see, and the crew size and duration is also the same. So those are the really big drivers for the system, so they're very, very similar. Um, SLS launch environments are a little bit different than Ares 1. Um, Ares 1 was a very energetic flight, so the dynamic pressure was higher. So SLS bounds a lot of that, but there were some changes, so the rocket changes did affect us a little bit, not much.
3: Yeah, so what can you not test with the Delta IV that you're looking forward to being able to test after this with the SLS, hopefully?
4: Basically, flying a full Orion. Uh, so uh, SLS will allow us to fly the full service module, which then have a prop system, solar rays, radiators, that the, the parts that ESA is providing, and it'll push us into the region of the Moon, so we'll have those environments in the lunar region that are different than what we're going to see on this flight. But this is still an extremely important mission, and what parts do you think are
3: the most important that you need to get out of this flight?
4: Yeah, well, it, it's an extremely important mission because of the things that we are testing on this flight, you can test in this region like, like I said we get very close to lunar entry velocity so it's a very good test for the heat shield the, the some of the most critical and difficult um, guidance and navigation functions are actually in entry so we're gonna test those just like we're gonna fly when we have people on board um, and then we're also gonna go through the radiation environment just like we were on EM1 and EM2 so we're gonna see how the computers behave so those are those are key things the other thing is that uh, the parachutes you know there's a They deploy, uh, first we have the drogues, and then we have the pilots, and then the mains. So we've done individual testing out at Yuma, where we can test kind of the profiles and failures, but this is the first time we're going to fly that full set all the way through the nominal environments and really see how they interact. So that's that's another key piece of this test.
3: Is there anything you wish that you could have fit, you know,
4: fit into the flight to
3: test that you can't in just two orbits?
4: Well, we had other things that we looked at uh, that we traded testing on this flight but it was a matter of cost and what we could fit in so the stuff we are flying on this flight were the most important objectives we thought we could that we needed any in particular you can name that were cut out uh... we looked at um, uh, there's a uh... we talked there when we have a docking mechanism the launch abort system actually has to has to connect to the docking mechanism too and pull the docking mechanism off so that was we could have made that launch abort system uh, interaction more like when we fly a docking system. But again, since we're not doing that for a little bit of time, we thought that really wasn't a key objective. So
3: after this mission, the focus goes to SLS, but what's the focus going to be for Orion going on after this?
4: So for us, we're one, we're adding the the European part, which is a key part. We're actually uh, finishing what we call the crew module adapter, which is the part right above the ESA part. So there's avionics in there. the uh, cooling system, the full-up cooling system is in there. We're going to add another string of avionics to Orion. Um, so those are the key pieces. Finished getting getting most of the software done, so that's a big part for us. So we have a huge amount of work to get to EM-1 ourselves.
3: Do you see needing to do any more unmanned tests beyond the orbit that you're going to now, such as to
4: places like the moon and onward? So EM-1 is unmanned for a couple of reasons. One, it's the first flight on the real, on the big rocket. Um, but also because we're going to fly it way out past the moon. So we'll see how all the systems that seemed to work pretty well when we were here, how they behave out by the moon. So that's a really important part of EM-1. Uh,
3: So when the data starts coming back, is there anything in particular that you're excited to see yourself?
4: Well, all of it will be exciting to see how it's actually behaving in a real flight. You know, we have lots of sims, we have an avionics lab in Denver where we run everything, but actually see the data come back like we expected or not will be really, really exciting. So we have displays, we'll be watching that, and uh, all of it will be cool, especially if it works well, you know, all of it works as we expect, then it'll be even better. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, just so in two days, we're actually exploration is starting, and we're flying in space, so it's a big day for us.
3: So this was before it actually launched. We were talking, I think this was L-2, so two days before launch. But he was like a kid in a candy store, and he's one of those mission managers that isn't just up there bored. He's one of those guys that really, really gets involved, and you saw it in the press conferences too.
1: Yeah, when he did his presentation for us, you saw it there too. I mean, this was a guy that I'm sure had been up a very, very long time that had... uh, been through all this, and this was toward the end of his day and i 'm sure the last thing he wanted to do was to hang out in front of us and i 'm sure he had places to go and things to do afterward. but uh, he did take the time to talk to us and uh, he entertained questions and let us know what was going on and it was very, very gracious with with us as well and If anybody gets uh, a chance, go ahead and and take a look at the uh, NASA television feed on uh, on YouTube and you can pull up uh, his presentation on, during the NASA social on that again, Mark Geyer, quite a gentleman, quite a gentleman, and this is a project again that he'd been working on for 10 years. You that had been canceled once, and uh, then reincarnated as a cargo up, uh, uh, crew down vehicle, and then finally was given its status as an exploration vehicle. And here, his crew, his team is is, is building it. So.
3: I do want to go to one other bite from him. I asked him a question in one of the uh, press briefings, and this was something I know that, Gene, you've been talking about. A lot of people online were talking about. They were comparing this a lot to Apollo. They were saying, why do we oh, need no to comparison. do this? We already did this with Apollo 4 and the block tests. You know, We've learned all this stuff already. And if nothing else, they were just comparing it too much to Apollo. And this is its own mission. And I asked Mark Iyer about that to basically say, what makes this different?
4: I think the key difference between Apollo is that the inside of the capsule is totally different. Uh, And you can think of the computers themselves. We know how much computing power has changed since the 60s. So we have state-of-the-art computers on Orion that not only help uh, this unmanned craft, but eventually allow the crew to have uh, incredible access to the systems on board, which you'll need when they're further and further away from Earth and need to be more and more independent. Uh, the, the, The interesting things about computers now is although they are much more powerful, they're also more susceptible to radiation than the, than the earlier computers. So we're, we're, we have a more powerful system, but it's susceptible to different kind of environments than the Apollo system. So I think it's a good example. We're flying this particular design, even though it's going through the same region of space, it's got a different capability and it's gonna have different reactions to it. It's the same with the heat shield, it's bigger. As Mike said, the structure is different. It's gonna react different. Same with the parachute system, has some fundamental differences. Um, the backshell tiles on Orion are shuttle-like, where on Apollo, they were more coat right? So for mass, we got a shuttle-like tile. So again, it's it's state-of-the-art, uh, and we're flying that state-of-the-art in the environment of space, so I expect to see some, some significant differences.
3: Gene, I know you were, uh, you were really interested in this.
1: Oh, yeah, because I got really tired of hearing the naysayers out there saying, oh, been there, done that, this is nothing more than just trying to rebuild Apollo. No, it's not. The Apollo Crew Module is a very different critter from the Orion capsule. The Apollo vehicle was about 12.8 feet in diameter. The Orion is 16.5 feet in diameter. Apollo fit three. Orion could fit four. It's a whole different vehicle. Apollo was designed in the 1960s. This thing is designed with current technology. Uh, it's a far more robust vehicle than Apollo ever was, and uh, it is definitely not just trying to rebuild the Apollo spacecraft. If we wanted to do that, we could do it, but why? This is this is a whole different uh, whole different animal. And the other thing too, I got a little tired of, was the fact that well, yeah, it even looks like Apollo and all this. I'm like, well, yeah, the physics of reentry. At high speeds from interplanetary distances hasn't changed very much in forty-five years. So, you know, physics. Yes, exactly. It it doesn't change. So, um, if because again, if you really want to poke fun, take a look at the design of the Dragon Rider and take a look at the design of the CST One Hundred. Similar design. So, you know they're they're following they're following as you said, Cassie, the laws of physics. They haven't changed very much for reentry. So uh, we're not just rebuilding uh, Apollo here. We're not, and I, I can't stress that enough. Orion again is going to be a far more, more robust vehicle, and will be the linchpin. We hope to uh, to take us elsewhere.
3: Exactly. It's the next step. It's something brand new. Uh, there's a lot of new things in it, especially when it comes to actually getting crew in it. And uh, I talked with Rex Walheim, who you may know as a shuttle flyer, especially from the last shuttle mission, STS-135. He's now in the exploration department working on parts of Orion for when they get it ready for the first manned flight, which I believe is EM-2. We're talking probably almost 10 years from now. But nonetheless, I talked to him about what steps are going on in terms of getting ready for crew. And uh, if you don't mind, we'll play that, please.
2: All right, so after having flown on the shuttle, how much are you looking forward to Orion? Very much. It's the, uh, it's the beginning of a new era, and it's really exciting because, uh, you know, I, I was a part of the, the ending of the shuttle program, and uh, it was a bittersweet time. It was, a, you know, a great vehicle to celebrate, and but after it was retired, there's a gap there, and uh, it's really nice to see a new vehicle come and take its place just like we said it would. A lot of people are concerned that it seems like we're going
3: backwards since we're going back to the capsule design. How do you feel about the capsule design?
2: I like it because there's a lot of inherent safety features in it that are very useful. The fact that you can have a launch abort system that can pull the capsule off the rocket in case something happens to the rocket, either even on the pad even or in, in flight, it gives you an inherent uh, safety capability you just didn't have with the shuttle. So it's a, it has a good design from that perspective. And then going deep space, that's really the only way to, to, to come back is in a capsule because you have wings. You're, you're going to rip them off when you try coming back into the atmosphere at that kind of speed. So have you had any involvement with being able to go out inside to Orion and testing out how it's being prepared? Yeah, so I'm the astronaut representative to the Orion program, so mostly I'm working on the, 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 obviously, the versions that are further down the line, like EM-2, where we're going to have crew on board, but I've been, uh, you know, helping them with the, uh, the decision making process during this whole design phase, and uh, for the last three years I've been working on it. And so uh, it's, been a, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed learning about the vehicle and uh, and, and helping out in the program. What are some design aspects that are either really new or innovative that people might not know about with Orion. Well the uh, a lot of it you know we are using a lot of uh, Apollo heritage uh, because the the basic design and stuff like that was uh, was well tested and it made a lot of sense as to why you put a shape like that to come back from a high-speed entry back from you know the deep space. Uh, But the whole insides are different I mean it's it's modern computer systems, so it's it's all updated all and it's got incredible capabilities. But uh, it's untested, though, is the problem because, uh, you, know, all, you, you know, as you know, our computers these days are very, very powerful, but they're also a little bit finicky. You know, they're, they're not necessarily as robust as old computers would be. So the best way to test that is to go through the Van Allen belts where the radiation uh, environment is very, very high and come back through them again just like EFT-1 is doing and see how some of that, some of those systems behave. And so those are some of the things we're going to be testing on EFT-1.
3: Are there any amenities, basically, inside Orion that you kind of wish you had on
2: shuttle or that might be new or different? No, I think most of it's pretty basic, and we're trying to keep it as basic as we can because we want to keep it as inexpensive as we can because that's the, you know, one of the big constraints we have is that we've got a, a pretty flat budget, so we try to keep things to no frills for the most part, but uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be just fine. It'll be comfortable enough for a 21-day for mission, which it's designed for, and then if we go deeper into space, we'll need a habitation module to, to really be able to stay out there for longer than that.
3: Right, so Orion
2: seems like it's the future. Where do you want to see Orion go? To Mars. I mean, it doesn't take long. You, you, there's a consensus on that. You know, the path we take to get there is, uh, there's some uh, different opinions on that. But that's okay, because the, the neat thing about Orion is it's not destination specific. It can go to any of these different destinations, like an asteroid, to the moon, to, uh, to, uh, to one of the moons of Mars, to, uh, to Mars itself, eventually. And so there's a number of different paths you can take, but that's, uh, that's great. And that, those, that path will solidify as we get a little bit closer. Now the most important thing is to test out the basic capabilities and, and make sure we have the spacecraft that we need to, to go to these deep space destinations. So is there any difficulty then in creating a
3: vehicle that can fit a crew that may have to vary in missions that may do something with Mars or the moon or an asteroid. Is there any variations that you have to make to accommodate to the crew or can that be easily switched out for
2: any mission? I think it, most of it can be switched out depending on the length of the mission. Once you go past the 21 days, though, that's where you need to have a habitation module. And so that'll be a lot different. But the, the main function of the, of the Orion spacecraft is to get you into Earth orbit and then to get you back to Earth once you get back from your from your mission. So um, those kind uh, of capabilities are pretty basic. What you need you, they, uh, are pretty standard for all the different missions to, uh, Uh, independent of where you end up going.
3: Okay. Um, Any other interesting facts that you could tell us about the manned part of Orion? Because this is obviously the unmanned test, but... The future is going to be the manned part of it. Any fun things you can tell us about that?
2: Well, it just—it it just is so exciting to, to have this capability again. Like we've never been to deep space in forty years. It's just amazing, and we're going to be doing that uh, right uh, right on the uh, first human flight. Uh, get a chance to go into uh, farther than we've gone before since since the Apollo program. So it's it's really neat how we can have that stair step capability. And then, like I say, the fact that you are not destination specific is probably the biggest drawing point. We can go to an asteroid on one mission, the moon of Mars on another mission. It's it, There's just a, there's no limit to the, the number of places you can think of to go to and to things you can uh, think of to do.
3: And where's the crew development stage at right now and what still needs to be done?
2: Well, the uh, the big thing we're working on is, from the crew perspective is crew displays and uh, and and cr- crew equipment like the suits, what kind of suits we're going to wear. And so we're helping folks with the development of that. And then uh, inside the astronaut office, we have what's called a rapid prototyping laboratory where uh, we're developing the displays. And we can we can develop them, change them, and test them out. And we're in the process of doing that very, very early, but that's the best way to do it. You want to get your displays and stuff um, coded up and tested as soon as you can so you have a chance to, to tweak them and get the best working displays you can have for the missions anything else you'd like to add no it's just really exciting to, to start this new era and uh, thanks for everybody being interested in, uh, and tuning in
3: so there's a lot of little things going on and obviously we've got a ways to go until we get into crewed flight but it's interesting hearing what he had to say and we'll hear more about the astronaut side of it in next week's episode when we get more in depth and i know Kat has a great interview with astronaut jack fisher
1: Yeah, again, Sawyer, just to to reiterate a little bit, there were some comparisons between EFT-1 and the Apollo 4 mission. Amy Title, who, no stranger to the microphones here, had an article on Popular Science basically saying that uh, the EFT-1 did not equal Apollo 4 for several reasons. Basically, she looks at this from a policy standpoint. Saying that Apollo 4 was, we knew what was going to happen. We knew we were going to go to the moon. This is Orion's future is somewhat murky, and all this. I tend to diff, differ with Amy in that I don't think Orion's future is murky. Uh, we know it's going to exist. The, the idea, though, is what we're going to do with it, and that that's still right now up in the air. We know it's going to be part of a of a larger, much larger infrastructure to one day get us to Mars. In some ways, I think we saw our beginning tentative steps in that direction on uh, December 5th. but uh, again, we, we just we, we'll get our act together. This, I still say is, is our first tentative steps out of the gravity well finally after uh, you know what 40 years. Uh, another article I'll bring up very fast was on med science innovation, and I wrote a very lengthy rebuttal to it. On here, the, 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 uh, uh, the argument here is that the Dragon Rider from SpaceX is the vehicle to watch and not Orion. And the reason given is because of the large timelines and the fact that uh, even former NASA Deputy Administrator Laura Garver is sort of anti SLS and, and all this other stuff. My thought is again, we are rebuilding. A exploration infrastructure, and a lot of people, I think, are getting the commercial crew program, and what SpaceX is up to, and what Boeing is up to with that program, kind of mixed up. Will some of the commercial crew stuff be ported over to an exploration architecture once we eventually do decide to shoot for Mars? Probably. I mean, we'd be dumb to not to to look at the technology that's being percolated over there. But to say that we're going to go ahead and throw the whole thing over to Elon Musk, as the author of this particular article is saying, uh, I'm going to pull up his name just a moment, uh, Michael Belfior, excuse me if I've mauled your name, Michael, but I really, really disagree with him. He says here, Dragon, not Orion, is the spaceship to watch for exciting groundbreaking missions. The next flight to the International Space Station, scheduled for December 16th, we'll see the first stage of the Falcon 9 relight its engines after delivering Dragon to orbit and fly itself back to a soft landing in the ocean without parachutes. Well, we'll see if that actually works. This will be the first time they're doing it.
0: Well, Gene, here, you know, just to jump in, sure. here are the two comments that I have on this article. First of all, the title is playing on a comment um, around the launch that was, America, Meet Your Next Spaceship. I want to point out that Dragon isn't America's next spaceship. Dragon is Elon Musk's spaceship. Thank you. And there's nothing wrong with that. We as space enthusiasts and people who are aware of what's going on with the space industry, we support commercial space. Commercial space is an important part of America and the world staying involved in space exploration and spaceflight. Will Dragon perhaps someday be part of the next exploration? Yes. But the infrastructure for a long-term sustained ship to Mars doesn't exist, and it's not going to exist anytime soon. The first people who should be sending astronauts to Mars should be a space agency, should be an organization like NASA, who has experience and understands the risk involved in a way that commercial for-profit companies can't always understand.
1: Yeah. I I can't agree with you more, Kat. I mean, one of the things I wrote in my rebuttal was just a reminder that exploration efforts were bankrolled by governments. The first assaults on Mount Everest, for instance. Heck, Queen Isabella and uh, bankrolling Columbus and, and so on and so forth. I can go on. A lot of these great explorations were bankrolled by governments. They weren't bankrolled by companies, although colonization things were later on. But that was later.
0: Cheating. And Gene, one thing I think that we also have to think about is people like SpaceX because some of their results are very public and some of what they're doing is very public. You see it as moving very fast because, you know, it's not that long ago that we had no idea who SpaceX was. So they see this as being a a fast moving a company that's going to get things done. And that plays into the public's love of instant results. During... Right before the launch, actually, about 5.30 in the morning, I had the opportunity on December 5th to sit down with Ricky Arnold, who uh, is in the EVA program. Um, he is an astronaut and currently on EVA for the International Space Station, and talked to him about these issues. And one thing that, that I asked him was how he felt Orion should be communicated to a public that might see this kind of spinning extraneous or might not see why it's important or why we should pursue it, Um, because as you know, Orion is only funded through its exploration. EFT-1 was funded, EM-1 is funded, and EM-2 is funded. After that, there is no funding for Orion. That doesn't mean that there won't be funding, but it requires a political commitment. So I'd like to take a chance to kind of play uh, the clip of Ricky Arnold answering my question about what he would say to the general public.
4: It sounds like a lot of money, but in, in the in the grand scheme, it, 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 it really isn't. And um, it, to me, the, the one thing that you, you want people to know is going to Mars, building a space station, these are all generational pro- projects, right? Uh, it's, it's, this flight's just one step and a long series of steps that, that have to happen before we land on Mars. And it's going to be, it ain't going to be me walking on Mars. It's not going to be Doug Wheelock. It's going to be some kid sitting in a classroom somewhere. And so we need to sustain the commitment to these these projects that we get started um, to to achieve the goals we want to achieve.
0: I really like that term you use, this is generational project. Uh,
4: Yeah, it's these things don't happen overnight with these really getting to Mars' heart.
0: So as you can see, Ricky makes this great point about these exploration projects being generational projects. They're not something that's gonna get done fast, but there's something that require our commitment as a public and as a political commitment to see them through, because the investment is worth it.
1: Yeah, exactly, Ken. I mean, one of the things that, that I tried to tell people was that this is the pace that, you know, the White House, the Congress, and yeah, you have decided that NASA should take, because all of this comes from your tax dollars, all of this comes from the budget, and it's that budget that dictates how fast things move along. They may not move along as fast as we would like them to, but eventually we are going to be mo- moving along. And I think, as you pointed out, it's going to take a commitment and we'll see what happens with the next administration and how that uh, all pans out. If you want to speed this up, you know, as I say almost every week, right? your representatives Talk about it a lot, <laughs> because that, the only way that things get sped up, as Gene said, is more money. Exactly. And if you want, if you want this to move along, I'm going to take off my journalist hat and put on my space advocacy hat here. If you want things to move along, you know, write your congressman. That's all I'm going to say.
3: And that's always the case. Now, we're going to have a much more in-depth discussion next week on EFT-1 and Orion, but we do have to briefly mention that this was another busy Space Newsweek, not just with the launches. Oh, boy. Uh, apparently, Curiosity's most recent finding is that Gale Crater, which is its current residence, at one point was a lake. <laughs> and that at one point it was filled with water, which says great things about the possibility of there once being life on Mars. So that's an amazing find.
1: Yeah, so real quick, it, it seems like three billion years ago... A Gale Crater was indeed a lake, and I mean they, they've they've found evidence in sedimentary rock and all all of that all over the place. The idea, though, is again the environment was really really key for life there. The question is how long was the environment in place for life? We don't know. Did it hang around long enough for for life to take hold? We again we don't know. Uh, we need to start and, you know, keep looking and, and so on. But, wow, it was a major find. And, again, this is what the Mars Science Laboratory or the, or the Curiosity rover was sent to Mars to do. And, and I have to say, bravo, mission accomplished.
3: Exactly. I mean, this these are the amazing finds we were hoping for with MSL and why we went to Gale Crater. And we're there. And I think it's worth it so far.
0: Yeah, and just a reminder, you know, Curiosity is part of a larger effort to investigate and find out more about mars billions of years ago mars could have looked a lot like earth it doesn't now and understanding why it doesn't and understanding how it actually looked before it lost its atmosphere and before maybe lost its lakes is important to understand maybe the future of our own planet so when again this question of Where is this money going to? Is spending on exploration important? Remember, we have to think about these missions as something that is helpful to understanding our own planet and our own future.
3: So there was the Curiosity news, and we mentioned Orbital earlier and uh, the issue they had. Well, turns out the Cygnus resupply vehicle will be flying once again in 2015. However, it will not be on an Antares. Antares will be rechecked and reset to fly probably in 2016 in fact they have three flights scheduled for then but for right now the next flight will be on top of an atlas 5 in 2015 at the end of next year
1: yeah so real fast the Antares is basically being looked at right now uh, there's going to be an engine swap uh, repairs are continuing over at uh, pad zero a over in wallops but Orbital still has cargo to move, and they wanted to go ahead and put a uh, go-forward plan. They had the initial go-forward plan together within six days of the accident, so obviously they already had something in place in the event of a unfortunate accident like this was. And they decided to go ahead and put Cygnus on an Atlas V out of the Kennedy Space Center, In the fourth quarter of 2015, there is an option to buy a second Atlas V core in the event that they need it for 2016. And they're hoping to uh, launch their entire uh, inventory that they are responsible for to the International Space Station in four launches rather than, than the remaining five. So... Uh, we'll see how all that works out, but so far things are, are moving along quite nicely. Uh, I know folks over at Thales Alina, they're also scrambling to get things going for uh, for Cygnus and and get things moving. Ditto with uh, with Orbital with uh, with what uh, they need to do. But so look for Cygnus to fly out of the Kennedy Space Center at least toward the tail end of uh, 2015 from. On board a uh, United Launch Alliance Atlas V. So, yeah,
3: lots of space news, and that's only touching the surface. There's so much more. There's the upcoming SpaceX launch and landing on a barge, and there's so much more that we could talk about. But as you've already seen by the length of this episode, we've already gone too far, and so we are going to go in-depth more next time into EFT1, because we have so many more sound bites, so many more clips, and so many more things to talk about with this mission, and we've got to talk about it now, because it's going to be another three or four years till we can again, so... We're going to have another episode coming up in the near future, and we hope you'll join us for that. Thank you again to everyone who joined us here today, and we hope you will be back with us for our next episode. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.